this episode goes in a different direction than guest episodes typically go. I so appreciated Dr. Jones for taking us in that direction. And since we recorded, I've realized there were so many questions I wish I asked that I didn't or opportunities for follow-up that I didn't take us on. It's important to me to say that like Dr. Jones models, we, myself included, are still learning. I'm definitely still learning. This was very apparent to me as I listened to the recording. And even in the moment, I was like, oh, what question do I ask? One of the best ways I have found to commit to the learning is to continue to have these conversations, deeply reflect on them, and improve my skills for the next conversation. With that, let me tell you about today's guest, Dr. Jones, and then we'll get on to the episode. Dr. Chris Jones has been an educator in Massachusetts for 22 years. His experience in the classroom ranged from 8th to 11th grade working in an urban setting. A portion of this was spent opening a high school division for an expanding charter school. He has just finished his 14th year as a building administrator. Chris is also the vice president of the Massachusetts State Administrators Association, MSAA. True to his why of improving the educational experience for as many people as possible, he is currently the principal of Whitman Hanson Regional High School in Whitman, Massachusetts. He's the author of Seeing to Lead, a book that provides strategies for how modern leaders can and must support, engage, and empower their teachers to elevate student success. Chris blogs weekly about continuous improvement and is also the host of the podcast Seeing to Lead, which I love, by the way, as a way to amplify teachers' voices in an effort to improve education as a whole. His overarching goal is to positively model continuous improvement in all facets of life by being purposeful, acting with integrity, and building character. Let's hear from Dr. Chris Jones. I'm educational justice coach, Lindsay Lyons, and here on the Time for Teachership podcast, we learn how to inspire educational innovation for racial and gender justice, design curricula grounded in student voice, and build capacity for shared leadership. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach. I'm striving to live a life full of learning, running, baking, traveling, and parenting because we can be rockstar educators and be full human beings. If you're a principal, assistant superintendent, curriculum director, instructional coach, or teacher who enjoys nerding out about co-created curriculum with students, I made this show for you. Here we go. Dr. Chris Jones, welcome to the Time for Teachership podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, Lindsay, I'm excited about this. You know, we, we spoke, we've spoken before a couple of times, and I'm just really excited to, to get into what you want to talk about today. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, if people, if listeners have not listened to your podcast, they need to. And specifically, I just loved being interviewed by you. So I think (laughs) people need to listen to that one. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll always take a free plug. Thanks. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll plug it again at the end. Don't worry. There there you go. (laughs) So I would love to just, in terms of like, before we jump into the core questions, would love to just frame for listeners, you know, what is something that either you're thinking of is top of mind for you as we kind of enter the conversation or that they should kind of be keeping in mind either about you or about what we're going to talk about um, throughout the time that they're listening? Um, sure. They can keep in mind that uh, at the top of my mind, I'm a struggling work in progress uh, when it comes to topics of diversity and equity um, and inclusion. I always, I always work to make sure that those are things that are occurring. But um, as I find out on a daily, there's there's always room for improvement, as is with everything. But somehow, it just seems more upfront now in these areas because while I'm 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 a huge believer in continuous improvement, um, I won a state award by the Counselors Association, so I must be doing something right there. But um, the people you affect. And the populations you affect when 
you're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, not to overuse those phrases, but um, are, are traditionally underserved populations. And so the idea that you can continually improve yourself, yeah, great, but you've been improving yourself. When you're talking about this, you're talking about populations, many of which may have not had that opportunity to continuously improve themselves, or they've, they've had a, a, a much more of a struggle than other people that have enjoyed privilege have had. I, I once had it explained to me through a book that I was reading, um, Headwinds and Tailwinds, and using the idea of flying across country, which was something I related to because I've flown across country a few times. And the idea that when you're flying into the wind, it adds time onto your flight. When you're flying back, obviously you get quicker. I know everybody's going, yeah, okay, Chris, right. Everybody knows that. Um, but what they don't realize is it's not like something just completely pushing you backwards. It's that constant pressure. Those little steps that I always talk about that before you know it, have built up into something too large to handle or much larger than anybody should have to handle by themselves. Oh my gosh, this is reminding me. So as of the time of this recording, it was somewhat recent, but but I had gone to this conference that was like just this epic panel epic panel. And Dr. Bettina Love was who I usually ask a question in regards to her quote at the top of this, each of these episodes, but she was talking about like the impact of like all of that, right. All of the things you're just describing and talking about how, like she had an illness and she's like, it is literally like white supremacy living in my body. Like how crazy is that? Like I, that I have to like, weather. I think it's the term is called weathering. Like there's this kind of like ongoing headwind that you're facing and like all of the oppression and the barriers and the extra just stuff, it literally manifests as like health complications. And it like, so it could literally be like life or death. And it was just, I mean, she's brilliant, but I was just like, I, to your point about constantly learning and evolving, like I am constantly just learning all the things that I don't know. And I'm like, that is like just this extra level of like, to just go off of what you're saying, like truth. Wow. Well, it's, it's crazy too. If you think about it, like one of the Okay, so I, I am, I was going to say a closet dork, but not so much in the closet. Um, but you look at pictures of presidents, and you look at the before and after pictures of presidents and how they look. They look young, they look vibrant. Hey, I just won the presidency. Awesome. I'm on top of the world. Four years later, they're like, man, show me the door. And they look like 20 years older because of that, the, the effect that the stress of the job has put on them. Well, Take that effect in every aspect of your life, and how could it not have a physical outcome? And, you know, even more so than that, and I mean, without going too much into my current reality, but even more so than that, um, you know, when you talk about trauma and the effects of trauma through generations, well, there was a ton of trauma experienced by a lot of these groups. And so it's not as easy to say, that didn't happen to you, or, you know, you didn't experience that but they have that connection to it. And that trauma has, has become generational trauma and passed down to where we don't want people to become victims um, and think with a victim's mentality. But oftentimes that's embedded due to past trauma that's been passed down through their families. How many of us look at our ancestors and say, well, I am that way because of so-and-so. And, you know, and oftentimes white individuals, white males, say it in kind of a, a, um, 
loving is the wrong word, but kind of a, a loving or reverence type of feeling saying, well, yeah, I'm either built that way because of this. I think that way because my grandfather thought that way and that's the way to be um, without us even really coming to realize that until we're already steeped in that situation. So I don't understand how the same or people can't see that the same is true for traditionally underserved um, populations of individuals. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much. I, there's so much there. This could be a whole different direction of the podcast. And yeah. I think Resma Menicum's My Grandmother's Hands is like one of the best books that I've read about thinking about that, like embodiment of trauma. And also like he talks about, right. Like even like white history, like white folks history and like the people who have come to what is now called the United States, but like who, who kind of came over, were often like fleeing oppression of a different kind. And like, so there's just like all this oppression, like across the boards in all racialized populations that is just like, we carry so much, like we carry so much of the things that we interact with daily. And then also of our ancestors in various ways, like to your point, like definitely depends on how you're racialized and like in what categories that you know, we've, we've put people into boxes and I just think there's so much there that like, in order, I'm going to make a rough segue here, but in order we're gonna, to like, we're going to do a whole new series. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, in order to like contextualize, you know, kind of the, the conversation we're going to be talking about kind of like starting with that big dream, like to sit with that context, right. Of all the heaviness right? That our students and our teachers and our leaders are experiencing as just human beings. And then to pull everybody together and be like, we're going to do this thing called education. Like, I think you know, that is a, a big lift. And I'm, I'm wondering like the dream of what it could potentially look like in, in this beautiful world that we could create. And, and Dr. Bettina Love's quote that I said I would reference, you know, is in regard to freedom dreaming. She says their dreams grounded in the critique of injustice. And so recognizing that injustice and taking a stance on critiquing it given the context we started this episode with <laughs> and all of that complexity what's the big dream that you hold for specifically kind of like curriculum instruction what what does that look like in, in the perfect school that you could envision wow and we've got one show you, you said um all right so i'm gonna say i'm gonna go with a broad a broad statement and then we can unpack it from there my dream when it comes to curriculum, obviously it'd be easy to say um, the curriculum materials and curriculum taught in a way that is um, culturally authentic or relevant, but everybody knows we should be doing that, right? Curriculums are, well, I, I would hope, let's put it that way. Curriculums are changing over, especially in literature. You see the changes so that we have windows and mirrors and we follow the idea of windows and mirrors for, for these different populations and all the students we see in front of us. Um, and that is, um, that's part of a larger dream that I have for education that we are taking action on a daily basis born from a broader and greater and deeper understanding of everybody's journey and how they got to where they are now. Um, you know, there's a lot of, if you look at, at Native American culture, there's um, a lot of, and I just referenced Native American culture, I'm sure there's others. But um, that reference a lot of the spirits and the and the spirit realm and their spirit ancestors that are still with them and travel with them today. Um, given that we we lend truth to that because we're understanding, we're open minded. Well, if we're lending truth to that, how can we not believe that we need to act in a way 
that honors the history that that individual has gone through that they may not have experienced physically, but they have definitely experienced spiritually and passed down through their family. Wow, that is so much. There's so much there. Kind of the relevance piece, the authenticity piece, the acknowledgement of ancestors. I, I think about um, Dr. Goldie Muhammad's work when she talks about just studying Black historical literary societies and and like defining so many things as you know the ancestors define joy as this, and the ancestors have pursued these things, and just like honoring that I think is such a huge thing that we often skip over and to center that in your dream, I think is really powerful. So as, as we kind of think about like where either your individual school is or, you know, practice specific practices you want to think about, like, where do you think like there is kind of a, a, a dream that you have that's not quite fulfilled yet, a direction maybe you're wanting to head, a practice you want to implement, um, where do you think there's kind of a solid foundation for, for this work? Um, and, and I often think about these kind of buckets or stages of like, there's like the culture piece, the culture of partnership, partnership with students, families. There's like the pedagogical piece, like how are we actually literally teaching and interacting? There's like, how do we assess? And, and also like to your point about um, the ELA classroom and, and the authors and the stories we bring in, like what is the content and the text that we explore and the histories we value and, and talk about, you know, considering all of those pieces, you know, what are your thoughts around that in terms of practices that, that you've seen be really successful and practices that you want to grow? Is, is that it? That's all you've got for the question? That's... Sorry for like 400 questions <laughs> in one. Um, so, okay. So where we are, we're, my school and, and moreover, even the district is in a, in a stage of transition. Um, we didn't have a lot of diversity. And so where we find ourselves now is we say a lot of diversity. Um, no. I, I've taught in other places, you know, starting my educational career, even where I went to school, um, much more diverse than where we are now. However, for this school, which is part of the overall thing for everybody is that we have to see where people are and take them from there. We're still not that diverse, but for us, we are very diverse and it's growing um, rapidly. And we're talking racial diversity, religious diversity, linguistic diversity, all the above. Thank you. Uh, no, racial and linguistic. Um, not so much religious, but um, that's not growing that much, but racial and linguistic, definitely. So we we leave for COVID, right? We're out of school for COVID. And we come back and I'm standing out in front of the school. I greet buses and students as they come in every day. And I'm watching the buses unload. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, whoa, like a good thing. I'm like, okay, awesome. And then the students are coming in everything. And most of the teachers are like, okay, awesome. Some of the teachers are like, mm, I'm not, okay, so how do I deal with this? And don't get me wrong, there's a sense of that everywhere. Not in a, not in a negative way, but the good thing about that or the positive aspect of that is that there's a realization that, a realization that something has to change, right? This can't be like it's always been because these students won't plug in and engage. And it's not as easy as saying, hey, just get on board. Um, because, well, there, there's two factors, right? There's one, a growth in population. Two, there's the idea that they haven't been in school for a year and a half. So they've been in a less diverse area. Now I'm talking about our white students. I'm talking about our black students, our brown students. They've all been in pretty, a, a pretty homogenous 
atmosphere why they were at home for a year and a half. And now they come back to school. And I don't, I'm not going to take credit for this. Um, Henry Turner said this to me while he was um, talking to me on my podcast, that if we think about it, high school is the last place where we force everybody to be together who's different without their input as to who they want to be with. And so that's where the rubber meets the road as far as making diversity work or making people feel um, like they're like it's an equitable situation. And so when they came in, um, all these different students were trying to figure out how to teach in person again with all these different things. We have all the diversity in front of us. And so we struggled. And now that diversity has continued to grow linguistically, especially as as well as racial. And it's caused issues. It's caused an uncomfortableness. And I, now I mentioned Henry Turner because the beginning of this year, we focused on this difference. We saw this difference happen the year before. And we said, look, this is a good thing if we can make it a good thing or continue to be a good thing. Because there are people, there are components in our communities, there are components in the school that are not pleased. And some are not pleased. Uh, I don't like to throw around the word racist. Um, but mostly there, there's the people that are not pleased, most of them are not pleased because there's an uncomfortableness with it and it, it's change and nobody likes change anyways. But now this is a special kind of personal change where it's different culturally all around, whether it's a linguistic or a racial difference, it's culturally different. And that's very difficult to overcome. So we started our year off and I, I do a soft start to my school year anyways, each year so that people can kind of come in and I focus on the, the idea of building community and belonging. And what we did is we brought in some training for our teachers. We brought in some training for our students. And as a teacher group, we got together, we did some work, um, came up with things we can do in our classrooms as far as um, culturally appropriate instruction. And then the students were talked to about what's this look like and how do we all get along in this? And so we did that at the beginning of this year. And this year has gone along and we've continued to struggle uh, a little bit, but with some other reasons. And I guess that's where I struggle most. So we're changing the curriculum. We're bringing in people to work with people because this does not happen overnight. And um, it's gotta be, it's gotta be stepped in. I've reached out for um, parents of minority groups to serve on the own special advisory board to me. We started a no place for hate club. Um, that's gonna, looks like it's more gonna turn into affinity groups because now I just finished some um, DEI training that Northeastern offers and doing that, I, speaking to the presenter, I'm gonna see if I can get her to come and present to our school. Um, and then from that, saying she was talking to me how an effective way to start affinity groups is but so we're doing all these things and still struggling and what it's turned into and this is where i struggle i know i just talked in a long circle i didn't mean to do that but um there's a difference between behavior that is inappropriate um racial inequity and behavior that's born from racial inequity. And right now, those three categories, we're dealing with some behaviors, but now every behavior 
um, that is corrected is instantly um, is met with a cry of racism or that it's because of our inequitable system. Um, and so that in and of itself has slowed some of the progress down because now people are saying, wait, anything I do, um, I'm now called a racist. And so then you start to get the us, them conversations going back and forth out in the community as well as within the school. But most importantly, and probably the most difficult aspect to deal with is with the students because the students follow the parents and the students follow the adults. And so if the adults and the, the community members can't get this right, there's no way the kids are going to get this right. Well, they will eventually, hopefully, with enough guidance, but man, it becomes a lot harder and an uphill battle to do that. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack with what you shared. You keep saying that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing, honestly, so like transparently. I really appreciate that because I, I love the stance that you come from of just like, we're learning and we're figuring this out and we're continuing to invest in training and support. And, you know, I, I think that many, many times if we, in this work, right? Like if we don't come from that orientation of like, Hey, I'm still learning. And then we're still growing. Like we close ourselves off to growth. And so I just think, I think that's a huge takeaway for listeners to just be like, yeah, like this is kind of point one. <laughs> it's like, you know, like you have to build that foundation of like learning and growth and being willing to try something that even if it doesn't go perfectly, like you tried something and you're learning from it. And I just, I just, I just want to honor that. Like you have shared all of that with that orientation and I really appreciate it. And I, I'm so curious to like dig into like some of these things. So first of all, parent advisory board, brilliant idea. I love that. So you have some student groups going on, you're starting the affinity group. So just to kind of like recap for people who are listening, some practices that they could potentially put in place. I love the idea of focusing on belonging and doing staff and student kind of focusing in terms of like, what are the skills that staff need to build? And then what are the skills that students need to build? It's really interesting kind of the, the negotiating the uh, racist labeling that you're talking about, right? Of like kind of being uh, kind of a bump in the, in the road or kind of like a um an adaptive challenge perhaps that, that people have to kind of negotiate. So I'm curious to know if you're willing to share like more about that. I kind of see this as like a I named adaptive challenge, but like I often talk about mindset shifts. So like, you know, what is that mindset shift that needs to happen to be able to kind of unlock the growth and the kind of culture of partnership, whether it's across racial lines, whether it's across staff, student parents, administrator, like role, like stakeholder roles. Sometimes that is like the barrier is the role itself. Um, I'm curious if you'll, you'll share a bit more about like, I don't know if there's a specific instance, I don't want to like call anyone out, but you know, that you're thinking like, oh, well in this scenario, you know, this is the labeling, this is where the labeling came in and this is where we could have gone, but we're held back by it. Well, I mean, like I, I had mentioned discipline things and, um, Often when discipline comes up to me and, and um, it's appealed to me and I uphold it or, or anything like that, one of the first things I hear in an instant like that, if it's if it's a student of color, um, I've been I've been mislabeled, so to speak, so many times this year. But where I sit and um, it, it's it's interesting because other people tell, they say to me, I, I don't know how you do it, but um, I just keep going. 
I know this is going to be messy. I don't, I don't have the answers, but I am willing to have any conversation and to dig in and open things up. And I've had success that way with students moving, moving through. Um, I'd love to say I have success with all those students moving through, but I don't. But we have enough success stories to make me keep going. And I look at it as I care so much that we all just take a step back and stop being so defensive and pay attention to the messages we're sending to impressionable students that I don't care anymore. I don't care what you call me. I don't care what you say to me. Um, I've had some really touching meetings with uh, some parents where they give me a hard time and they laugh. We had a really difficult parent who then came back to sing our praises for all we'd done for her student. I I had a meeting um, where I'm, I'm trying to think all the different ones where I had a meeting with a parent. She said, you know, Dr. Jones, I have to tell you, um, my kid and all his friends were sitting around the other day and um, she's a woman of color and her and her kid and all his friends are um, of color. And she said, um, you know, they were all trashing all of you. And uh, I heard my son stick up for you and say, no, he's all right. And she said, everybody was kind of surprised. She said, I was surprised because, I mean, you know, you're white. We don't trust you because you're white. And I took that second to say, I said to her, I said, well, you know, I can't tell you how happy that makes me feel to hear that your son's, you know, starting to trust me a little bit. I said, what's, what, what's really disheartening to me is that they're getting the message from somewhere that they can't trust me because of my skin color. I'm willing to trust them, no matter their skin color, with the idea that I understand there's baggage with that. And that's all right if they don't trust me, but they got to at least give me a chance. I said, I, I understand why they wouldn't, um, but how how do we make this right? How do we untangle this awful knot where I can pay attention to the idea that there's baggage, I can pay attention to the idea that um, they, maybe even you, approach education differently. But we can't do that unless we actually take a step back, stop being so defensive, and realize that not everybody is the same as the other person. Because then she told me, well, you know, we came here, and they came here because of the school, which is the, the frustrating part. <laughs> They, they came here because they want the better education. They moved from the town they're in, we're school choice. They moved from the town that they're in because they didn't like where they were and they didn't like what was occurring where they were. And I get that you run into societal issues because then, she, I mean, she went on to tell me that she never thought she'd experience the racism that she does outside, like but from her neighbors and, and things like that, which is, which is awful. Um, that you, because in the end, and I have to believe this, this is what keeps me going, um, we all want better for our kids, right? Isn't that the idea? That no matter what experience we have, if we experience, and I, and and look, I'm, I'm a middle, I like to say middle-aged, but I'm a middle-aged white guy um, that hasn't experienced racism or anything like that, has, has seen privilege. I, I've seen the other end of it, um, but not experienced it personally. So I get that there's that baggage, and but I get that don't you want better for your kid? Like, doesn't everybody want their kid not to have to go through that? I mean, being white and having privilege, I want my kids to have better than I had and not to experience some of the things that I did. So I can only imagine that they would, but we, we can only get there. And this is, this is my, my dream. You're talking about dreams is that we can all just kind of sit back 
put the defenses down a little bit and trust just long enough to plant that seed and grow it from there. Let me plant the seed. I'll feed it, water it, nurture it, put a cage around it and help it grow. But you got to let me put the seed in the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I, again, I want to just highlight some of the things that I think you you said that are really kind of takeaways of one, just kind of, I, I mean, this is my own phrasing and <laughs> take on what you said, but like that, that decreasing, it'll be better than mine. <laughs> the decreasing the need to the, the defensiveness, right. Decreasing that defensive huge. I, I would argue that like everyone is steeped in as Beverly Daniel Tatum says that smog of racism. So in, in effect, like we all are racist in given moments, right? I think racism describes an action, not necessarily an identity that is permanent. I think Ibram Kendi talks about this a little bit. If it's like, right, like a name tag versus a tattoo. And so like, I think to be able to just be like, oh yeah, that policy is racist or my approach to this student versus this student. Like, yeah, there was some racism in that action. Like just to be even able to say and be comfortable with like, thank you for pointing that out to me. Like I get to learn now with you. Like, I think that is what enables, like what you're saying is like the partnership with the parent that the student defending you is like, that is the perception. And, and it is like, as a white person, like, you know, I I totally would understand why there is the skepticism of white folks because Dr. Bettina Love in that same kind of conference was talking about like, like white folks have brought so much pain and policy and oppression and like all of these things that have made it so much harder to survive. And, and has, you know, those health impacts that she talked about are a result of that, um, of white folks in power. So like as a white person who want, who is committed to anti-racism is committed to partnership and, and success for students, right. Is it's like doing what you're doing, right. It's like, let me lower my defenses. Let me engage with you. Let me plant the seed and nurture it. And like, I got you. You just have to give me that, that one little window to like open that door or whatever the metaphor is. And we're going to sit down and we are going to act in partnership. And I think if you have that, if you have that commitment to partnership and growing the seed together, like so much is possible and so when I think about that, that culture of belonging that you're talking about building staff and student wide, like that's what you're saying is at the core. Like if, if so many schools can do the things and do the PDs, but they can't do the things that you just described doing, like we're not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> right? Right, right, right. Yeah. I just, you know, it's, I don't know. It, it's to be able to sit there and realize, or, you know, it's even, walk a mile in my shoes and why is it easier for a white individual to look at another white individual and understand that they might have had it tough where it's not that easy for them to look at a black individual or a brown individual and say oh well you know they could only have had it this tough because that's what i know as a white person and not take a second to realize that that's a whole different that's that's a whole different world that that we can't understand. The reason I want a parent advisory group is because that's lived reality. Their kids go home and talk to their parents. Now they might not talk to their parents the way our kids talk to their parents, and you know your kids might talk to their parents, but they talk to their parents about their lived reality. So whatever they're saying, it might not be accurate. Whatever what kid is, you know, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. Um, it might not be accurate, but boy, that's their experience. And so that's valid. And until we deal with that, we can't get to accurate because they're not available to participate in that. So 
if we're not putting someone in an emotional state, right? I mean, it's Maslow's hierarchy. If we're not putting someone in a state where they feel safe or an emotional state where they can then open their minds enough to, typically they talk about learn, but how about just understand and be part of a larger group so that we can fix these problems? Because alone and separate, we're not going to. You know, I think about, um, I think about when all the continents were together, right? Um, dawn of time stuff. When all the continents are together, stay with me, I'm going to make a point, that they floated apart. Well, now try and put those back together now and see how hard that is. The problem is, in today's society, we have floated so far apart because people have driven wedges purposely between different races different ethnicities, genders, religions, that it, it is incredibly hard to at least even envision coming back together before somebody throws out a slur. Somebody says, well, you know this. Um, it's, it's just going to be difficult. It's a long road, but we need people that are willing to do that. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned Ibram Kendi because um, I, so I, I was reading um, White Fragility, um, and that was that that was okay. I, I got the premise. I didn't necessarily agree with some of the premise. And then I read Ibram Kendi and I was like, man, that just that just hit home for me. Um, and the idea of racism being a continuum and being act-based to where on a Monday you could be racist because you're practicing racist acts. On a Tuesday, maybe not so much, but just that was such a good way to show how it's embedded in our society that I thought it was accessible. Yeah, and it, and it lowers the defenses when you can think of it that way, right? It's like, oh, that's an action. Like I have familiarity with apologizing for actions or interrogating actions like versus this is the core of who I am and you're somehow like attacking the core of my humanity, right? Like total different conversation right. and total lowered defenses to be able to critique an action, right? Oh yeah, so good. So, oh yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, <laughs> like I was you're just gonna say, and there's so much, you know, there's so much to it. Um, and there's so much that's built into society and the way we were raised. I, I just heard somebody share a story how they were giving a presentation and the students in the, in the auditorium were getting restless. And so this individual always heard their father say a certain phrase. And so this individual said that phrase to kind of wrap up the, the, uh, the assembly. They turned to the person next to him and they said, oh, well, the natives are getting restless. Well, the, the problem is, right, first of all, you shouldn't say that anyways, and they realized it. The problem is they actually have Native tribes as part of their district, and there was a kid looking right at this person when they said it, and they instantly, and they apologized. Now, the person was very upset that they said it, and the kid that was looking said, don't worry about it, and the, and the rest of the group was like, oh, no, 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 no don't worry about it. But that's, I, I give credit to the fact that this person said, I'm going to take it on the chin. I said something I shouldn't have said. Let me be honest about why I said that and, and how that came to be and apologize and, and authentically apologize. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think the act of apology as an educator, as an adult in a situation where you're constantly working with children, super underrated. I mean, the act of being able to apologize is a game changer. Like it is a game changer. 
And I, I just think in addition to, I think I have a whole book on apologies, actually, maybe I'll link that in the show notes. It is so good. There you go. <laughs> but I think, I think that idea of just thinking about the speaker, right. Who said, who said that, because that is like some of the things that we say, like regularly, I was, it was just sharing like a, um, a moment from, uh, my childhood where, um, there was, there was the recently in the news or something, there was, someone had said, um, like, I'm going to kill your family or something as like, a like like something in a, in a, the heat of a moment, something like a, that came out and the kid was like completely expelled from school. And like, it was like this thing. And it was like, yeah, the kid never should have said that. And also I think about myself as like a third grader on the kickball field. And I like, oh, you caught the ball that I kicked. Like, oh, I'm going to kill you. Like totally something that like was part of what I heard growing up, never meant it felt immediately embarrassed that anyone, like when someone was like, that's so mean. And I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Like, why are you saying that? Right. But right. like, it's when I think about like, intergenerational and structural racism and like the smog of that we all breathe kind of thing is like the more that we as adults do to help our children whether it's our biological children the children we're parenting or co-parenting or the kids in our schools like the better we do now for those kids the easier they're going to have it like in in dominant groups in like white groups in uh, cisgender groups and you know whatever the like dominant power access groups are if you are more familiar with people from other backgrounds that are not yours or are the non-dominant groups in the structures, like you're not going to say that thing and let it slip because you never heard it growing up because your parents and the teachers in your community did such a good intentional job of not using language like that or not framing something in this way or intentionally taking an anti-racist stance and eradicating racist policy. You know, like I just think about that often from the standpoint of like our white children, like we are helping our white children so much too when we do this work and model it so that they don't have to unlearn all the things that we as adults are currently unlearning, right? Right, right. Unlearning is difficult work. I'll, oh, yeah. And, and you know, unfortunately, it's it's become to be expected. So um, I had some students that were sent down, I think this is last year, because they were wearing do-rags and um, some students were wearing bonnets. And... So they got sent down. We don't we don't allow wear hats. You can't wear hats or hoods as part of the dress code. And so I brought them in to the office. And now not only is it with the assistant principal and the dean of students, but it was with me because I told them, I said, no, 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 bring him in. I want to talk to him. And so now they come in and <laughs> hindsight's always 2020. If I was 16 years old and I walked in with the principal the and the two assistant principals because they want to talk to me, I'd be like, oh, it's over, you know? <laughs> But um, I asked him, I said, so talk to me about why you wear your do-rag. And they kind of looked at me, neither one of them wanted to say anything. I said, no, ser seriously. So talk to me why I'm not, you're not in trouble. Or, and I had to convince them that they weren't in trouble. And then I just had an honest conversation with them about why they were wearing their do-rag. Um, and so they talked to me about it. And then the dean of students and myself, we did a bunch of research on do-rags and bonnets and the cultural significance and where they originate from. And so that week, the next week, um, students were allowed to wear do-rags and bonnets because it was it it was something we were doing that was racist that we didn't even realize really it was racist because we were treating them the same. And that's where you run into these, these hidden, and I'm using air quotes for the listeners, these hidden racist policies where you're doing it in the name of equality. Well, equality is not the same as equity. And until people understand that, especially when it comes to race or gender or religion, this isn't going to get fixed. 
and I know I'm saying this isn't going to get fixed a lot, but it's, it's a, it's a lot of work. And so then, you know, the next thing was, well, if they can wear do-rags, why can't we still wear hats? So, you know what, just cover to the whole thing. Like really, who, why are we even talking about this? Um, so it, it's, it's interesting when you take those little steps that those are some of the, like I said, planting the seed, they fully expected to get in trouble, especially now the principal wants to talk to us. Um, they fully expect to get in trouble, then they weren't. And so they went out and talked to their friends. And then some um, white students probably, I so I lifted the hats much later than the do-rags and the bonnets, but, um, and I much later, I say like two months after that, cause I had to get it through and amend the handbook. But um, I had two students, two white students, each wearing a do-rag at a lunchroom table. And a student went over and said something to them. And then came over, came up to me, asked for a meeting with me, came and sat down with me, student of color, and said, you know, Dr. Jones, that's cultural appropriation. And uh, I, I was really upset that they were wearing do-rags. And when I went and asked them why, they said they were, look, they were wearing them to look more intimidating. And so I said, okay. So now that's a discussion with the two students that are doing that. I thank the student for bringing it up to me. But so then... After that, we didn't see any more white kids wearing do-rags. So it's it's just those little things that we have to make sure we address. Like you were talking earlier, and I saw one, you were saying something so good I didn't want to jump in on it. I was saying the idea of you have to not just watch your language, but you have to speak up when you hear the language that isn't appropriate. And you have to, not in a mean way, in a very polite, respectable way, you just have to call it out. Because that person, well, right, well, there's two things. That person might not realize it and might be using something that they've heard before, or that person might realize it. And that's a whole different story. And then you take it from there. But quite often that person, when it's called out like that, is not going to double down with another inappropriate comment. But if anything, they're going to think to themselves that you're someone that is going to call it out. So now they either they stay away from you and the circle that you're around, which, okay, you've made a little splash in the pond, or they're going to have a conversation with you about it and they're going to reflect on it and not do it anymore. Oh my gosh. So much of what I loved in this conversation is that you give so many concrete examples that I think people can connect with or that exemplify like how you lead, which is just amazing. Like I think about how many students and people are watching, not maybe like in the actual room with you, but like watching the conversation that you're having with each of these like individuals around just the, the policy around headwear, right? Like, so you had the initial conversation with the people who might be getting in trouble and like, oh, okay, now we're going to change the policy. Okay. Now you're, now you're having the conversation with the kid who's like, Hey, these white kids are wearing do-rags. Like, this is not cool. And then you're having conversation with white kids. Like people see that you're having the conversations and just a testament to that, I think is the student of color who came to you and said like, I, Hey, there's a problem here. Like just that level of comfort to be able to say, I can go to him and I can talk to him and I'm going to tell him like, and I'm going to be received. I'm going to be heard like so powerful. And then all of the white kids and the white staff members, either members of your leadership team, teachers, whatever, who are seeing you like conf confront it, right. To ha then have the conversation with the white students. Right. And like, so it's not even kind of like a, we don't want these white kids to do it, but like, it's also a, here's how you lead in this situation. 
right? It's like, here's what we do. We confront it. And whether or not that conversation went like in 100% perfectly, or I would have said this differently, whatever. It's like, we are willing to have the conversation. And the impact is that people see that conversation is happening. Like, I just, I I feel like throughout these, you're offering these beautiful gems. that I just want to highlight for the listeners, like the practices that are happening, you know, and it's, it's progress, not perfection. If people are like, oh, well, I couldn't, I don't know what he said in that conversation. So therefore I can't have that conversation because it wouldn't go well. Like, no, it's the point is that you had the conversation. Right? right, right. And and you know what? Those conversations aren't going to go well. And one of the things, and this this takes a little aside, but um, it is relevant to it. The idea that I don't know what he said in that conversation, so I'm not going to have that conversation. The slow death by avoidance is you you will never make progress because so the N-word, right? Um it's, we talk about when we're, when we're educating students, and we ran into this a lot with masks, so it was an easy transition because first you had to have the mask, then you couldn't have the mask, and you had to be three feet, and you had to be six feet, and then the mask couldn't be down. It, it was a mess, and then you didn't have to wear a mask outside, and then the only place you had to wear a mask were schools, medical facilities. Yeah, okay, I'm 15. I'm going to keep track of this. And then teachers are frustrated because they know they're supposed to be doing the right thing. Then they're reprimanding kids. The relationship's fractured, all that. It was inconsistent. And that was the problem. When you boiled it down, it was inconsistent. Consistency wins every single time. Whether you're trying to make, whether you're trying to get large goals, you don't do it by massive jumps, leaps, bounds. You do it by consistent, small steps moving in the right direction. So with the N-word, same thing. It's it's inconsistent because music has the N-word all over the place. Um, there, the N word is used outside of school. And then you get into the argument of who can use the N word and who can't use the N word. So what we did is we, we had a conversation with the staff because the staff is very uncomfortable with, with trying to approach that in the hallway, but that's where you have to approach it when it's used. You can't say, I'll talk to you after because then it doesn't have anything to do with it. So what we did is we just said that word in and of itself is inappropriate in school. We're not saying what you are doing outside. That's that's up to you. But in this setting, much like when you're in different settings, whether it's a career, whether it's a job, wherever it is, there are certain things that are inappropriate. And and using the N-word is one of them. We're not even going to get into the argument of hard R, soft R, A, all that stuff. Um, just know it's not appropriate. So we we instructed our staff that whenever they hear it, that's all they say. Hey, you know, and I'm just going to use your name because you're here. Hey, Lindsay, uh, you know, that's that's an inappropriate word to use here. We're, we're not going to use that here. So what that does is it lets everybody else know that that's inappropriate because they call it out when it happens. It happens in the moment. And it's not a discussion. We're not opening up for a debate or anything like that. Now, if we know when it's being used in a derogatory way. And so if it's being used in a derogatory way, that's a different, that's a whole different ball of wax. That's yeah, Dr. Jones is talking to you in the office. You know, the assistant principals are talking to the office and we're going to handle that from there. But other than that, we've noticed a drop in the use of that word. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, it's giving teachers and anybody in these situations smaller concrete tools that they can use that are low effort, that are low risk, because otherwise that word is said and... The teacher looks and did I did I hear it? Maybe I didn't hear it. Maybe if I was looking the other way, even though they heard it, but that then and and everybody does this. You justify it to yourself not to say anything, and you let it go by. And you know what? You do have that kind of 
that dirty feeling afterwards because you know it was wrong and you didn't act. And that runs contrary to human nature. Um, but then it goes away and you're on to the next thing and you forget about it. And then the next time it happens, well, what happens now is oh, people can say it. You just say it. Nobody's really going to say anything to you. And then it increases and it intensifies. And then the first thing you get is your actual racists using the excuse that, well, they use that word. Why can't we? So. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. And and I think too, if I could add one like kind of additional layer of that is, is for me personally, as a white woman who taught primarily students who are not, who is racialized as black or brown or something that a race that is not white. It was really important for me to be able to have like a rationale of sorts to be able to come in and be the authority or the rule person in my classroom which to me, what felt most aligned to my values and like who I wanted to be in the class that I wanted to have like the sense of belonging going, going back to that, it was um, in case there is every student who would personally feel like offended by hearing someone say that, like I am going to be the keeper of this space where that is, we are free from using any language that would harm someone else's dignity. So like, I'm not the arbiter of if that's you or not, like, or who that will be, but just in case, like, why would I ever want someone to feel like I'm attacking their dignity or someone else is attacking their dignity? We just don't want that. So like, that's why, you know, like, and it's like a 30 second, like if someone is like, Hey, who are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right, right. we are the keeper I, of the space. <laughs> uh, I love, I, that's what I was going to highlight keeper of the space. And I like that you said, we wouldn't want to do that because I was thinking as you were talking before you said, we wouldn't want to do that. That's on, that's on, who wants to hurt somebody else's dignity for no reason? You don't even know these people. And maybe you do know these people, but really, have you known them long enough or have you been so wronged that you need to hurt their dignity? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's the line. It's like, we don't violate someone else's dignity. I think that that could go for anything too, right? Academic conversations about tense issues. Like we, the line is dignity. We don't violate other people's rights or dignity. Like that's, that's right. it, right? right. Um, I've realized that we went so off script that <laughs> we have had a beautiful <laughs> conversation. Thank you for going there with me. <laughs> Do you have, have any questions by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I am so curious to see if there is something that you would either add or synthesize for us if, we're kind of envisioning the leader listening who is like, okay, you guys just gave tons of examples, kind of analyzed several situations. I want to be an anti-racist leader. I want to support my staff. I want to support my student culture, like all these things. Like what are the things that I prioritize doing or where do I start kind of thing is what I'm thinking we could kind of synthesize and wrap up or if, or if there's anything you want to add, feel free. I was, well, at first, before you said, um, any where to start and different steps they could take. I was going to see if I get Nike to sponsor your podcast and say, just do it. But um, no, the, um, you know, it, it starts really with your values. Um, you know, often we talk about values and we talk about what we believe in and then we don't follow through and we let things happen around us and get ourselves involved in things where we don't speak up for our values and our beliefs. If you truly believe that you that it is up to you to be the leader, the anti-racist leader, or the person that works on anti-racism, then you have to do it. And you do it first by looking at your values and realizing that no matter what your values are, whenever they enact, interact with making people better, organization better, or anything like that, that that all depends on human beings. And if we look at everyone as a human being, 
that's a start because then you need to add the different layers. I think of those old transparency books, the science books. I told you I was a dork, but those old books with the with the with the body systems in biology that you'd put one transparency over. I used to be mesmerized by those things. Then you put another one and you put another one and, and it gets thicker and crowded and more complex. Start at the first transparency about what you believe in and the fact that it's tied to we're all human being. Take the next transparency and lay it over that base picture and complicate it a little bit. Who can you communicate with, with the understanding that their understanding, their experience as that human being is not the same as yours. And so it complicates things from what you're experiencing. And then flip the next transparency and look at the institution that you're in charge of the institution that you're part of. Look at what policies are in place and how that complicates things based on people's race, people's ethnicity, people's gender, how they identify. Um, and just keep flipping the transparencies because all that communication has to be based on the understanding that you don't have an understanding of what they've lived and the past traumas that they've experienced. That's how you start. And you have to, you have to have those conversations by pulling people in. Mm -hmm. And you can't do it by pulling in somebody looking like yourself and saying, so how do we fix this? No, you got to pull in the people that you're trying to reach out to and make it a better existence for them. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I think we can actually tie this back to curriculum, which was the addition initial thread, we could do this in a class where you were analyzing a primary source document, right? Like do the transparency, like what values are at play here? Like let's layer on the identities. Like, hmm, we got it. We came back. And that's, that's so, that's so important in history or in, or, or in anything where you're reading, but like you think of primary resource documents. Okay. Well, that document was written by somebody, hence primary resource. Who was it written by? What were the times like? Why did they write it? Can we just be honest? You know, what lens were they writing it from? Were they, you know, you, you talk about different documents. Um, I don't think you had non-white people in a lot of the documents that we, we analyze living that experience, writing these documents. Because if we did, I, I, I dare say some of those documents might've been different. I don't know, maybe going out on a limb. But I just, the, the idea that if we could, if we could all come together be less defensive and start that practice by trying to understand rather than thinking we already do understand because we don't. Yeah. Um, and when you have those conversations, some of those conversations will shock you. Some of those conversations will be rude. Some of those, con you, you won't have those conversations because you won't like some of the conversations that you have and it is uncomfortable and you don't have the answer, but that's when you know you're getting the real stuff. If you sit down and you have a conversation with a person um, who is part of a minority group based on color, gender, identity, um, anything like that, if you're comfortable, you're not getting the truth. If you're uncomfortable, that's a good thing. And you just need to learn to lean into it because as much as you might not, might not like it, you're getting the true picture. And then you can go back and I like to do this anyways as a leader with everything in general. Um, when somebody disagrees with me, I like it when people disagree with me. And I kind of like it a little when they're negative, which is weird. But um, 
I kind of like it when they disagree with me and they're negative because I sit back and I think to myself, okay, what if they're right? That's got to come from somewhere. And then that's when I can search in and I can turn negative people positive. I can turn um, programs, initiatives into better things. I can make it a more equitable system and structure for everyone, regardless of race, gender, religion, anything. Oh, what a beautiful way to end. I am going to ask you one more question. I know we've been talking for like an hour, but I want people to be able to check out your podcast and connect with you. So can you just share for people where they can connect with you, where they can follow you on social, what your podcast is all about? You know, I get asked these things and I always draw a blank. The first thing I would say is my podcast is Seeing to Lead. You can find it on any, um, any podcast platform that you listen to. I really subscribe and give me feedback. I, I love it. And most importantly, as soon as you listen and subscribe, make sure you catch Lindsay's episode because you were absolutely fantastic on my podcast. So um, the podcast is seen to lead anywhere you listen to podcasts and it actually publishes to my YouTube channel as well, which is Dr. C.S. Jones. Um, Twitter is at Dr. C.S. Jones, Instagram, Dr. C.S. Jones. It's, it's all Dr. C.S. Jones. If you want, I, I also, um, I respond to emails, reach out and email me. That's at uh, doctor, which I say, I keep saying doctor is DR, um, but the Gmail address is Dr. Chris SJ uh, at gmail.com. But hey, reach out. Um, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to anybody, especially in this journey. And uh, like I said, make sure you listen to Lindsay's episode first on seeing the lead. And, uh, oh, I also have a book out too. That's uh, by the same name, Seeing to Lead. Almost forgot the book. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And we'll drop links to all that in the show notes. Oh okay. my gosh, Dr. Jones, this was so nice to have you on. Thank you for this beautiful conversation. No, thank you, Lindsay. I really appreciate it. If you're leaving this episode wanting more, you're going to love my live coaching intensive curriculum bootcamp. I help one department or grade team create feminist, anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. We weave current events into course content and amplify student voices, which skyrockets engagement and academic achievement. It energizes educators feeling burnt out, and it's just two days. Plus, you can reuse the same process anytime you create a new unit, which saves time and money. If you can't wait to bring this to your staff, I'm inviting you to sign up for a 20-minute call with me. Grab a spot on my calendar at www.lindsaybethlyons.com contact. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.